blame this on this young man right over here. He asked me if I could sing this song. And again, it's one of those I haven't sung in ages, but I'll try. Uh, it uh, harkens back to my Wyoming days when I was out there in the 1970s, uh, fresh from Texas, and uh, I had never hunted anything bigger than a rabbit. And all of a sudden, we're out there. Uh, we've got a bunch of us about to go elk hunting. This is in middle December. And uh, there's an area, well, it's where the Uinta Mountains from Utah spill over into Wyoming, down in the southwest corner. And a bunch of us from the church were going down there on the weekend. I had some time off on Thursday afternoon, so I decided to go down there and do a little scouting around. And, of course, broke the first rule of hunting is never go hunting by yourself. But I thought, well, I'm not going to get off the road. You know, I know where I am, and it'll be okay. So I get down in there, and... I had looked around for a little while just trying to spot tracks and stuff like that and couldn't find anything. So I was turned around headed home when I see a guy coming out of a road. I didn't even know the road was there. I didn't have a clue where he's coming from. So I stopped and talked to him. I said, where did this road go? He says, well, you can follow it way back in there, and it'll come up on top of a high ridge back there. And I'm thinking, hey, I mean, everybody knows that's where the elk's got to be. They're not down here. they got to be up there. So uh, I decided I'll, I'll follow this for a while, and I get back up in there. And the snow is about knee-deep. It's cold, typical winter in the mountains. And uh, I turned up the ridge and uh, got up there where the wind had sort of blown all the snow away and uh, got out and looked around. There was a moose down below me grazing, but I didn't see any elk sign at all, so it's getting late, sun getting low, so I decided, well, I'll turn around and go home. So I'm coming down the ridge, and I missed, because the snow had been blown away, I missed the turn to go back down like I'd come up, and I just went clear, just kept sailing right down the ridge. There's no road anymore under there, but I'm just sailing, and I thought, well, you know, the snow's not that deep. I can see, uh, I can see grass coming up. Uh, then I found out too late that what I thought was grass was the top of sagebrush about this tall. And I plowed right out into the middle of a huge snow drift and uh, just sunk. I mean, I'm high-centered and, you know, putting four-wheel drive and all four wheels just spin. And I'm thinking, this is probably not going to end real well. And uh, so I get out. And I had a high lift jack and jack the front up and put rocks. I found some rocks under kick along, under the snow and put a stack of rock under one tire and then another stack under the other and let it down, fire up the truck, go about six inches, drove off the rocks, and then I'd have to kill it, get back out, jack it up, move my stack of rocks, let it down, fire up the truck, go another six inches. And after about a couple hours of that, <clears throat> I'd gone three or four feet, <laughs> only, only had about another 30 feet to go. <laughs> and I realized I'm in trouble because it's now, it's getting dark and man, it was cold. It, the wind was blowing and uh, I began to hit me. I've got to find somewhere to spend the night up here. And there was no shelter, but I had a wool sack in the back of the truck. We used to take a wool sack, we'd get an elk or something, we could put that around the meat and keep it clean. So I strung that, I, there's a grove of trees right over to my left and got that wool sack strung, strung up there to make a windbreak. I had some plastic pads in the back of the truck and uh, put those down on the snow so I wouldn't be just sitting right on the snow. And anyway, then went kicking around and sure enough, God apparently predestined some beavers to cut down some trees for me <laughs> because I found these quaking aspen, these quakies we call them, under the snow. And I drug up about five of them uh, over here where I'm gonna make my windbreak and had the, the trunks coming in from all different directions. And Lord enabled me to get a fire going. So I'm up there, I'm, you know, by now it's pitch dark you know and uh but i'm uh, i'm in the wind break i mean it got cold but uh i had a fire so you know all things considered i was doing pretty good now my family still talks about that as the night i got lost in the mountains <clears throat> and uh i said well no i i knew exactly where i was you know i wasn't lost but in the biblical sense i was lost 
Because the way the Bible uses this term, apollomi is the Greek word, the way it uses that is sort of like when you're behind uh, 50 to nothing, you know, you went to the football game, your team's behind 50 to nothing, one more minute to play, and you, well, we lost the game. Well, what do you mean you lost the game? You can't find the game? No. You're not talking about being lost in the woods. You're talking about that now it has passed into a state of lostness, a state of irrecoverability. You can't get yourself out of it, so to speak. In that sense, I was lost in that I thought I could get myself out. I stayed up all night feeding that fire and managed to uh, get through most of it. Well, it's about four in the morning now, and uh, it's beginning to get a little daylight back over the peaks of the Uintas, and I'm, I'm running out of trees. I've pushed them in, burned them all up, and I've either got to do one of two things. I either got to get out and find more trees, get my fire going again, or since it's getting daylight, you know, I can see the light out over the mountains, uh, I, just, I, I just decided I was going to hike out and broke the second rule of hunting. Never try to walk out at night. Never, ever. And I took off. But I knew exactly where I was, where exactly where I needed to go, and I went in exactly the wrong way. <laughs> because I still didn't realize where I was, that I had missed the road back to the highway. I was still thinking that was in front of me. And so I take off walking. And about 7 in the morning, finally now, the only thing that saved me was the sun's coming up now. And I'm seeing, I'm looking around, I've never seen this country before in my life. Where in the world am I? Had I tried that the night before, I'd still be, you'd find my bones out there somewhere. But anyway, what I had to do was just turn around and follow my tracks right back to where I'd left the truck and began to walk out and suddenly saw what was going on and managed to get out to the road and people picked me up. And uh, by the way, search and rescue was called out for me. That's a rather humiliating <laughs> experience. But hey, I was glad to see them. And the funny thing was search and rescue, they pull up in their Jeep and the guys hop out and they come running over to me. And the first words out of their mouth was not, how are you? Are you okay? But have you seen any elk? And I began to realize that search and rescue is code word. It's what you tell your wife when you're really going elk hunting, but you've got to go out and hunt for this poor camper out there in the woods, you know. It's a secret code. And, uh, but anyway, thank the Lord uh, he preserved me in spite of my stupidity and uh, in spite of my inexperience, he brought me through that experience. Uh, a little while later, uh, we used to sing the wonderful song Charles Wesley wrote, And Can It Be? And um, it's presumably his conversion hymn. The story is he wrote it the day after the Lord saved him. And uh, there was a line in there that always intrigued me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. And that phrase, nature's night, had a special meaning to me because I've been there. I know what it is to be in the dark. And you have no idea. You just can't get yourself out of that situation. You don't get yourself out. You need finding. You need the good shepherd to come seek and save that which was lost. So anyway, that's the story behind this. And we'll see how it goes here. The sinking sun sets behind the Darkness surrounds me, it's terror I feel. There's none quite so helpless, so needy of light as one who is wandering in nature's dark night. Give me light 
session and uh, thank you for hanging in there with us. I realize it's a long day and especially that good mood. Oh, the food was fantastic. Thank all of you who contributed. Wonderful, wonderful stuff. Let's take one more look at our subject. We've seen, when we ask this question, who is Jesus, we've seen the Old Testament testimony. We've seen the testimony of apostolic writers. Now we want to go to one final testimony, and that is the testimony of Christ himself. Who does he say that he is? Let's start over in John, the 8th chapter. John, the 8th chapter. John 8, 56, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. John 8, 56, we'll come back to the significance of this a little later in the message, but that let you think on this a little bit. John 8, 56, Jesus is speaking to the Jews, and he says, Your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Remember, Abraham lived 2,000 B.C., 2,000 years before Christ. Have you seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. And then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, 
and so passed by. We uh, might ask, why are we spending our time talking about this subject? I mean, can you find something a little more practical for us? But when you really think about it, is there anything more practical for a Christian than to learn about Christ? Uh, we were talking a little early among ourselves and pointing out that, that what we're dealing with here, this question of who is Jesus, is really more fundamental than, than even the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. Because what difference does it make who, died, who Christ died for if his death, if he's, just a, if he's just a man, unless he is the divine son of God, then all of our theology comes crumbling down. It's good for nothing if he's just another human teacher. And if we had to defend it, most of us would simply say, well, that's what I've always been taught. You know, I grew up singing holy, 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 God in three persons, blessed trinity. Uh, that's just my tradition. Uh, however, that's not a very good defense. And as I said the first evening, you're going to be faced with this more and more as time goes on. Do you really believe that Jesus is the divine son of God? From the very beginning of Christ's ministry, and especially it seems from John's gospel, and that's not unique to him, but it's certainly prevalent in John's gospel, that we see a, a, a slow opening of the disciples' eyes as to who Christ is, and a slow development that he is more than just a man. Go back to John chapter 1 a moment, and let's look at when he first called his disciples. You recall that in verse 45, John 1:45, that Philip, who has met Christ, comes and finds Nathanael and says, We found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He's, he's Sort of, he's going to be a hard sell, okay, trying to convince him that this is, God, this is the one the prophets were talking about. Philip saith unto him, come and see. Uh, by the way, the fact that Jesus was raised in Nazareth, you ever thought about the significance of that? You know, he was born in Bethlehem, and then because of uh, the son of Herod is now reigning in Jerusalem, they, when they went back, they went back to Nazareth. Um, there is passages in the Old Testament that speak of a branch, a branch out of Jesse's root that speaks of this coming king. And there's two Hebrew words used for that, but one of them is the word netzer. And Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus, when, when Mary and Joseph turned aside and went to Nazareth, that Matthew says it was fulfilled, what he said in the scripture, he shall be called a Nazarene. Well, there is no text in the Old Testament that says that he shall be called a Nazarene. But what there is is a number of these texts that speak of this branch. Netzer, it is the root of Nazareth. You could say Nazareth literally is branch town. So where do you want to find the branch? Go to Branchtown. That's where he was raised. And what, what Matthew is doing is not citing one reference, but he's pointing out the fact that there's all these references to this Netzer, and here is where they settled, and so he's sort of bringing that all together. He shall be called a Nazarene. So I just want to throw that in for your consideration as we go on here. So anyway, here we go. Jesus saw Nathaniel, verse 47, coming to him saith to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no guile. And Nathanael saith unto him, How knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. In other words, what Jesus is saying before Philip ever got to you, I saw what you were doing. You were sitting there under the fig tree, and Nathaniel is just absolutely blown away. Here's somebody who knows all my circumstances, everything about me. So he just, uh, you're the son of God, the king of Israel. But Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? 
Thou shalt see greater things than this. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Do you remember Jacob's ladder from last night? At Bethel, he lays his head on the stone and has this dream of the ladder reaching to heaven. And who was it that he saw? Yahweh on that ladder. Do you see here's a subtle hint, a clue that Jesus is giving us as to who his true identity is. He's linking himself with that vision of God that Jacob had had long long ago. That's sort of what you see going on here in the flow of John's gospel. Little by little, Jesus opening their eyes to who his true identity is. Go to John chapter 3 a moment. John chapter 3, first of all, in verse 11, we see verily, verily, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, by the way. Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that which we do know and testify to that which we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man who is in heaven. Now, parse that sentence a minute. They, the first century was full of what was called these assumption stories. The most popular one was the assumption of Moses. And it's this idea where someone is caught up into heaven to be given revelation, these mysteries, and then comes back to earth and shares the secrets of heaven with his fellow man. Okay, That was a very common genre of literature in the first century. Like I said, this assumption of Moses, the one you hear a lot about, but that's the idea that's behind it. And so what Jesus is talking about is that what you, you, it's, the real revelation is not somebody being caught up to heaven, but someone who was sent down from heaven. In other words, what Christ is claiming here is a heavenly origin. We see it a little clearer a little later in this same chapter. Go to verse 31. John chapter 3, 31. He that comes from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthy, earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he has seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receives his testimony. But he that has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son and has given all things into his hand. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life, and he that believes not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides or remains on him. Now notice again the claim to Christ's heavenly origin. I always get a little tickled when I read later on in Matthew's gospel when the Sadducees came to Jesus talking about the, you know, the woman that had the husbands and one after another, they all die. I think she's putting something in their coffee, but it's just my, my hunch. But the Sadducees are using what we call an argumentum absurdum. Uh, they're trying to show that uh, the belief in heaven would be an absurdity that, you remember, under the Leverite law, the brothers, uh, one dies, the other has to take his place. And so you've got all these seven brothers that all die. So the question is, when they get to heaven, who's, who's going to be the husband? Who's going to be the wife? And, and what's funny about that to me is here these guys, these eggheads, are wanting to argue with Jesus about the nature of heaven when heaven is his original day. <laughs> That's where he came from. It'd be like somebody, I came from a little town called Nevada, Texas, population 286 when I was a kid. And it'd be like you arguing with me about where the old schoolhouse was. There's no trace of it anymore. And you say, well, I think we think it's over here or over here. I, w I was there. And this is the same thing going on. Here is the heavenly origins of our Savior. He will say more than this as you follow the argument. He will say, I am from above. You're from beneath. In other words, if you want to know what the truth is, you're going to have to listen to the heavenly witness, not the earthly witness. This is not you speculating 
about the things of God. I have been sent by the Father. Notice in the closing verses. He whom God hath sent, in verse 34, speaks the words of God. And God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. Prophets in the Old Testament received the Spirit. Priests received the Spirit. Kings received the Spirit by measure. A portion. Remember, Elisha wanted a double portion. Whatever Elijah's got, I want a double portion of that. But Christ is not being apportioned out the Spirit of God. Unlimited, vast amount, as it were, of the Spirit. So do you, do you see the distinction as Christ is slowly opening their eyes to who he is? Let's go to John 5, and as you turn there... Uh, I was in a Bible conference with D.A. Carson some time ago, and he pointed out a very interesting and important idea. He said that in the ancient world, it was just assumed that you men will be of the same occupation as your father. That if your father was a plumber, you're going to be a plumber. Your father's an engineer, you're going to be an engineer. Because in the ancient world, that's how you learned. You didn't go to trade school, didn't go to university. You watched your father. You learned to do what the father did. So he said, it's just assumed that if your father is this, you're going to be the same thing. And now, if I ask to show a hands here, how many of you here are doing the same occupation as your father? Got some. Yeah, I figured we would. We got a few. How many are not doing the occupation of your father? Bunch of us. My father was a farmer. I got away from the farm just as fast as I could. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but in the ancient world, if I say, how many of you are doing the work of your father? Every hand in the room would go up. That's just the assumption. And it was assumed that of Jesus. You remember his father, Joseph. You remember when they said, we know his father. His father's the carpenter. In Mark's gospel, they don't say that. They say, where is Jesus the carpenter? You see the assumption that if his father Joseph was a carpenter, he is a carpenter. And probably Christ growing up worked with his father as a carpenter. The word carpenter doesn't mean necessarily someone that works with wood. It's simply a word that means a craftsman of some sort. So the idea is, is that the father, is his works are going to be echoed by his son. Well, here, that's important here in John chapter 5 because Jesus, remember, heals this impotent man uh, there at the uh, sheep pool in Bethesda uh, in the first verses. He tells him to take up his bed and walk, heals this guy. He hadn't walked. How many years does it say here? 38 years. 38 years, the guy can't work, walk. Jesus says, take up your bed and walk. He hops up, and he's carrying his bed. And what happens? The Pharisees jump on him because he's carrying his bed on the Sabbath day. Let the absurdity of that hit you. Not the miracle, not the fact that here's a poor man who's laid immobile for 38 years that suddenly can walk, but you shouldn't be carrying your bed on the Sabbath day, boy. And notice Christ's reply here in John 5, 17. Jesus answered them, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. Do you see the assumption? I'm the Son. I'm doing what I see my Father do. My Father is working, and so am I. Because they're accusing him of breaking the law by healing on the Sabbath day. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, and here's back to what we asserted this morning, the Son can do nothing of himself. He's in man mode. What he does, he does out of dependence on his Father. The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatsoever things he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. In other words, I only do the things I see my father doing. And then he expands on that in verse 20. For the father loves the son and showeth him all things that he himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these that ye may marvel. Notice, I only do what I see my father doing. But then the second thing, I do all that I see my father doing. Do you see the identification 
of Christ with his Father. And he goes on to say that the Father has given me certain authority. Verse 21, for as the Father raises up the dead and quickens them, even so the Son quickens whom he will. Verse 22, for the Father judges no man, but commits all judgment to the Son. Verse 23, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. Let that sink in. Whatever worship, whatever adoration you would give to God the Father, it is the Father's will that you give that same adoration to the Son. That would be idolatry, that would be blasphemy, unless he is indeed the divine Son of God. Do you see the connection? You are to treat him, honor him, as if the same honor you would give to God the Father. Do you see how slowly Christ is developing this theme? And of course you know that as we spoke this morning, there is that example of him forgiving that man's sin there in Capernaum. In Matthew 12, we see another Sabbath controversy, and his answer there is simply the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath day. You understand what he said? The Sabbath is not boss of me. I'm the boss of the Sabbath. And then, okay, so what we see is this sort of slow development. But I want to point your attention to what I have found to be a peculiar, interesting little thing that pops up here, especially in John's gospel. And it is because of the fact, let me back up, in Hebrew, we talked about God's name is Yahweh. Does anybody know what that name means or where it comes from? It's four Hebrews letters, four Hebrew letters, the Tetragrammon, they call it, four letters, and it comes from that encounter Moses had at the burning bush. Remember when he's asking God's name? I'm going to go to them. They're going to want to know the name of this God who sent me to them. What am I to tell them? And God says, tell them, I am sent you. I am that I am. The word I am in Hebrew is Yahweh. That's where the word, the name comes from. It's this I am God, this self-existent, eternal being. That's what he's being said. But remember, when we turn to the pages of the New Testament, we're no longer speaking Hebrew anymore. We're speaking Greek. And the question is, run through my mind at least, okay, if I wanted to say I am in Greek, you wouldn't say Yahweh. That's Hebrew. Right? Well, what would you say? What would be the equivalent term in Greek to Yahweh in Hebrew? And it is the Greek phrase, two words, ego, ami. Ego, ami. I am. We find that expression, oh, about 17 times in John. But most of the time, it's connected to a predicate, a predicate nominative sometimes. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the bread of life. So it's got a predicate nominative. Were y'all awake that day in grammar class? Okay, predicate nominative is the, it's like is is an equal sign. I am this. Okay, so I can say I'm thirsty. I am that, that kind of thing. It's descriptive. So it may be an adjective or it may be a nominative. In this case, we have Christ using a lot of the nominatives. I am the bread of life. But there's some seven times that it's used without a predicate. I am. Sometimes, if you're reading out of the King James, you'll see that the translators will insert the word he in italics. If you, you know what I'm saying, you realize the italicized words aren't in the text. They're inserted by the translators to try to make sense of what the words in the text are saying. And so a lot of times you'll see uh, uh, I am he in the sense that I'm the one you're talking about. I'm the one you're looking for. But there's about four places in John that it's used without a predicate, and shall we say very suspiciously, that something more than just a simple I am, like I'm here, I'm me, is meant. Let me have you look at those places. First of all, in John 8, there's a cluster of them here. John 8. 
back up to verse 23. Here's reiterating what we said earlier. And he said unto them, Ye are from beneath, I am from above, ye are of this world, I am not of this world. Okay, so he has an otherworldly origin. I said therefore unto you that ye shall die in your sins, for if ye believe not that ego a me, I am. The translators inserted he if you're reading out of the King James, but that's not in the text. If you don't believe that ego a me, ye shall die in your sins. Sounds suspicious, doesn't it? I'm not sure you could prove that to a Jehovah's Witness. But we would say, yeah, that seems to be saying more than simply, I am he. I mean, I am he who. He doesn't go into that. But if you don't believe that, ego a me, the same I am construction that we see back at the burning bush, you're going to die in your sins. Look at it a little later in verse 28. Then Jesus said unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man. Anybody know what he's talking about? I mean, to be lifted up sounds like a good deal, right? Hupsoo is the Greek word, to be lifted up. But he's not talking about being lifted up in adulation. He's talking about lifted up on a tree, on a cross. He's talking about the manner of his dying. And so Jesus said, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that, ego, me, I am. And that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. Here we have that strange construction again. So do you see what I'm saying? Do you see what I'm getting at? If we were going to try to say Yahweh in Greek, this would be the phrase we would use, ego, me. Let's go a little later, and we see that John 18 in John 18 verse 4 Jesus therefore knowing and this is his arrest at the garden of Gethsemane Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? Now, this, this is the, notice in verse 3, this is uh, Judas and the band of uh, uh, men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees. They've come down to arrest Jesus down in the Garden of Gethsemane. And just as an aside here, this won't be on the test, uh, but I've been down there in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the Kidron Valley, down below the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And they still have these big olive, uh, big old, ancient, so they claim some of these trees uh, date back to the time of Christ. I doubt that, but anyway, very ancient olive grove there in this Garden of Gethsemane area. The thing that struck me was that you're looking up at the Temple Mount and you can see the trails that would come off of that. And I'm thinking about Jesus and his disciples that night in Gethsemane. I mean, folks, there's no street lights. There's no flashlights. It's dark. And Jesus and his disciples have gone to the garden, right? And then remember that Jesus took James, Peter, James, and John, went a little deeper into the garden. And then he left them, those three, there and went even a stone's throw further into the garden. I mean, he, he's way deep in the garden. And you, it, you would have to be blind not to see this band of chief, the priests and the officers and the soldiers coming with their lanterns, as it's described here, coming down that slope right above you. You can see them coming. All Jesus would have to do to escape is just sneak out the back. But you go ahead and read the account. You know where Jesus met the soldiers? Right back at the front of the garden. So that's the context of this. He is, as it were, letting them arrest him. But even that is difficult because look what happens here. Verse 4, Jesus, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said unto them, Ego, me. 
And Judas also, who betrayed him, stood with them. And as soon as he said unto them, Ego, me," they went backward and fell to the ground. Do you have a, a hint here, a clue, that maybe there's something more than he said? He's not just saying, I am he. He is identifying himself with that, I am God. Then he asked them again, whom seek ye? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I've told you, a go, a me. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way. So you see, it's just suspicious. Raises a question in our mind. But the one that is beyond all controversy is the one we read as our text a little earlier back in John 8. In John 8, verse 56 again, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou, you're not 50 years old. You've seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, Ego, me, I am. Clearly here we are talking about the pre-existence of this person. And you might be asking the question, well, when would Abraham have seen him? Well, didn't we talk about that last night at the Oaks of Mamre, those three personages showing up, one of whom was Yahweh? Of course Abraham saw him. That's what was going on there at the Oaks of Mamre. And so here we have Christ identifying himself as that person that has appeared to Abraham. Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it. And the Jews got it, verse 59, then took the up stones to cast out him. Cast out him. They were ready to stone him. They connected the dots. You're claiming to be the eternal God, the Yahweh of that encounter with Abraham. I get excited. I realize you're on the verge of, uh, what do we call it, coma? <laughs> and you're doing great, by the way. I, I admire your tenacity. But, oh, my, let the ramifications of all of this sink in. That here you ask Christ, who do you say you are? Here's one of those places it is unmistakable that he is identifying himself with deity. And by the way, even when you have, I'll just give you a summary of it, when you have a predicate, another one of those a go a me statements is I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And you know, we all know the story. The shepherd lays down his life for the sheep and all of that. But we don't know our Old Testament very well. And we don't know that when he says, I am the good shepherd, he's referring to something back in the Old Testament out of Ezekiel 34, where God is taking the priest and the rulers of Israel to task because they, rather than feeding the sheep, they're fleecing the sheep. They're eating the sheep. They're enriching themselves by the sheep. They're supposed to be the shepherds. That is those who have custodial care of the nation. That's their job to look after the sheep and they are using the sheep for their own benefit. So God is basically saying, I'm coming putting you boys out of business. You're not going to be my shepherds anymore. I'm going to come. Read Ezekiel 34. I'm going to come and shepherd my sheep. God's going to come and shepherd. And then he says, I'll give you David to be your shepherd. Now, wait a minute, which is it, David or God who's going to be a shepherd? Well, if we understand this is a few hundred years after, well, several hundred years after David has died, he's not talking about literal David. He's talking about the son of David. Well, who is it? Is it going to be God that's the shepherd or David? The shepherd? Well, it's both. In other words, here comes now Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. He is identifying himself with that prophecy back in Ezekiel 34 that I will come and rather than fleecing the sheep, rather than eating the sheep, I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep that they might have life. So here we see again, even when there is a predicate, these I am statements are very, very powerful. Well, there's one final place 
before you go into a total coma, there's one final spot I want you to think about, and it is at Christ's trial. You do recall that uh, Jesus' famous phrase to speak of himself, the one most common, is this phrase, Son of Man. And remember we saw that phrase back in Daniel 7? One like the Son of Man coming nigh the Ancient of Days. Okay, just want to make sure you're still remembering all of that. And we might think at first that for Jesus to call himself the Son of Man is a diminishing of who he actually is. That basically he's saying, I'm just a man. But if we really understand what the scriptures are saying, it's not that at all. It's the opposite. That he is identifying himself by that Son of Man figure there in Daniel 7 who comes near those two Yahweh, you know, the two powers in heaven Here one comes to the other and receives a kingdom. I want you to go to Christ's trial in Matthew chapter 26. He is being tried before Caiaphas. There's a chain of events. There's a Greek verb called paradidomai. It's just fun to say, paradidomai. You sound so important and intelligent. You know, throw that word around. It's just fun. Paradidomite. And it, it, it means to turn over, to pass from one person's authority into the hands of another. So a lot of times when you see the word betray, like Judas betrayed him, the Greek verb is paradidomite. He handed him over. He betrayed him. Okay? And when it comes to Christ predicting what was coming to his disciples, he kept telling them that the Son of Man is going to be paradidomized into the hands of the chief priests and elders, and they will paradidomize him into the hands of the Gentiles, talking about the Romans. And then you read what happened at his trial. Pilate handed him over to be crucified. He paradidomized him to be crucified. So you got this chain of handing Jesus over from one to the other. There's a passage here at the trial of Jesus where he's standing before Pilate. And Pilate, uh, you know, there's this encounter. Jesus is basically saying, what Pilate's saying, don't you know who I am, boy? Don't you know I got power to crucify you or to turn you loose? Don't you know who I am? And Jesus said, you didn't have any power at all over me except it be given you from above. You know, you big wig. (laughs) The only power you got is what you've been given. But the one who paradidomized me to you has the greater sin. The one who betrayed me to you has the greater sin. I always thought that was probably Judas he's talking about. The more I've studied it, I don't think so. I think it's Caiaphas. Because Judas was going to paradidomize him to the chief priest. They were the ones who paradidomized him to Pilate. Judas didn't deliver him to Pilate. He delivered him to Caiaphas and the priest. They're the ones who delivered him to Pilate. And that why that's important is because Caiaphas, being the chief, the high priest, is the highest official ruler in Israel at that time. They don't have a king. So in the absence of a king, King Herod's just a Roman appointee, in the absence of a king, the high priest is the guy. He's the highest ruling authority. And it is the high priest who has turned Jesus over to Pilate and insisting that he be put to death. So in other words, the trial of Jesus, we sometimes think of it as a mob action. You know, things just got out of hand. Oh no, this is official. This is the chief priest, the high priest. The rulers of Israel are the ones who have turned Jesus over to Pilate. Do you want me to crucify your king? They said, we have no king but Caesar. Let that sink in. They have renounced their messianic hope. They're not just saying we don't want this king. We don't want any king but Caesar. This is the high priest. So yeah, when you get right down to it, who has the greater sin here? Oh, Judas's sin is horrible. But here, this is official action. This is the representatives of the nation who are turning Jesus over to be crucified. But back to the point at hand, when Jesus stood before Caiaphas, back in Matthew 26, verse 62, 
Matthew 26, verse 62, the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witnesses witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I assure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Finally, I've had it with you. I put you under oath. I assure you, this is to swear an oath. I put you under oath to God himself that you tell me, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus said unto him, you said it. Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter, ye shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Do you remember the scene in Daniel 7? One like the Son of Man coming on the clouds to the Ancient of Days and receiving a kingdom that would never pass away. Whether or not you and I get it, Caiaphas got it. Then the high priest rent his clothes, saying, He hath spoken blasphemy. What further need have we of witnesses? Behold, now ye have heard his blasphemy. That's why the study in the Old Testament is important, that then we're able then, when Christ makes an announcement like this, we're able to realize what he's doing. Yes, I am that prophesied one, the one in the counters of heaven coming on the clouds, and receiving this kingdom, which will never pass away. Paul makes a statement in Colossians 1.15, speaking of Christ, that he is the image of the invisible God. We've been driving that home, that God, infinite spirit, but you can't see him, you can't touch him, he's not substance, he's spirit. But Christ, says Paul, is the image of the invisible God. He's the visible depiction of the God you can't see. And as we read earlier in John 1, he's the best, he's the exegesis of this invisible God. No man has seen God at any time. He's invisible, but he has declared him. Do you, do you see how this is working? Do you realize to be an image, let's take the sun for an example. When you walk out here and look up at the sky, somebody was telling me y'all hadn't seen the sun very recently till today. So that's uh, a good, good example. You walk out here and say, there's the sun. Well, you're not seeing the sun. You're seeing an image of the sun. Do you realize the light that you're seeing from the sun left the sun eight minutes ago? Speed of light, 186,000 miles a second. That's seven and a half times around the diameter of the earth in one second. But it still takes eight minutes for the light that left the sun to reach your eyelid. So you're not seeing the sun. You're seeing the sun as it was eight minutes ago. If you shot at it, you'd miss because it's no longer where you see it. It's moved. There's a difference between the sun and the image of the sun. And yet... If I say, is the sun shining? Oh, yeah, wait, wait a minute, it's not the sun shining, it's just the image of the sun. You don't say that, do you? You don't say, no, to see the image, you see the sun. And it's the same substance. This light is radiating from the sun. In es its essence is identical. But there's a difference between the image and the sun itself. Now, I'm just using that as an example to understand what Paul is saying, that he is the image of the invisible God. He's all you will ever see of God. I'm convinced even in heaven, you're never going to see the face of God Almighty. But you will see the glorified Christ sitting in the midst of the throne like a lamb who has been slain. Every time you see that depiction in the book of Revelation, there's this one sitting on the throne. That's who you will see. He has always been and he will always be the revelator of this invisible God. And so it doesn't surprise us 
at the Last Supper when Philip says, show us the Father. Just show us the Father and it'll suffice us. And Jesus says, have you been with me so long and you still don't get it? He that has seen me has seen the Father. My friend, that is either one of the most blasphemous statements ever made by a human being, or Jesus is indeed the divine Son of God, co-equal, co-eternal with God himself, the revelator of God. Which do you believe he is? And if you believe not that I am he, says Jesus, you shall die in your sins. Don McKinney, you ever meet Don McKinney way back there in the old days, early days of the Sovereign Grace Movement? Uh, Don, wonderful, wonderful preacher, wonderful guy. He's gone on to glory now. But he uh, had made a trip over to Israel with a group. And if you go to Israel, you're on a tour and you probably will have a tour leader that's, you know, that got the tour together from the States. But when you get over to Israel, they assign you a tour guide. That's just the law over there. You've got to have an Israeli who serves as your tour guide. And that he can either make or break your trip. Uh, we had an excellent one the two times I've been over there. Uh, but in Don's case, they had this guy who was just being obnoxious. And every time Don is trying to tell the group about... Uh, he's talking about when Jesus, you know, when, when Christ comes and uh, he was talking about Jerusalem. This guide was saying when, when Messiah comes, he's going to do this. And when Messiah comes, he's going to do that. And finally, Don said, I had enough of it. So the next time he said, when Messiah comes, I spoke up and said, you mean when Messiah comes again? And this guy went to chuckling. He said, yeah, you Christians said, uh, you've got your Messiah. We've got our Messiah. And Don said, yes, but Jesus said, if you believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. That's what's at stake. That's why this study is important. And back to the question, it doesn't really matter who Christ died for on the cross if he's not God in the flesh. It's not going to do anybody any good if he's just a man. Some people say, well, he's just a good teacher. No, he's either a liar, a fraud, deceived, crazy. I mean, you think I'm understating it? You meet a guy on the street one day and says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Meet him the next day, I'm the resurrection and the life. Or says, he that has seen me has seen the Father. The guy is either nuts or he's the Son of God. There's no middle ground. May this help you in settling, if there's any doubt whatsoever, who the Old Testament says Jesus was, who the New Testament writers said he was, and who Jesus himself said he was. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time and your word we've had together. And Father, just may it be fruitful and profitable in our lives that it might equip us to better be able to present gospel truth to those round about us, that we have without any question that, Lord, it is our God who has come to save us in the person of his Son. He alone, this unique Son of God, true man, true God, in one undivided person, uniquely equipped to be our Savior, the only one who can do us good, the only one who can answer the charges against us, and bring us to glory. What a Savior you've given us. May we never get over it. And may we praise him. May we never be afraid of heaping too much praise upon your son. Because we know it is your will that we honor him as we honor thee. Bless those in attendance and bless the churches represented here. Keep your hands upon them in the days ahead. And Lord, may we hear good things. How are you using them in your kingdom's work? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.